The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Jay Dyer, whose work many listeners, I think, are well aware of. He describes himself as an author, comedian, co-creator, and TV presenter who breaks down a number of subjects from the esoteric, the elite, and geopolitics to philosophy, culture, and theology. He does fantastic work. He reads the elite's boring textbooks and summarizes them for the common folk. Uh, you can find him at jaysanalysis.com and Rockfin. Willkommen, Jay. How is the Great Reset treating you? Um, good. I mean, well, it's not treating me good, but I'm good. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we're in the middle of uh, what we call dystopia now. I mean, we, Jamie and I have been doing podcasts about movies that are dystopian and trying to figure out how many things in the movies have actually come true. So I would say that yeah, I feel like I'm living in the middle of a movie, basically. Yeah, I wanted to pick your brain uh, a bit uh, on that. And I think for me, it's great to finally connect with you. I think we have a, a lot in common. And I was just telling you I was approved for Rockfin. So now we're fellow Rockfinners. And uh, awesome. I, I wanted to get your broad view of where we are now today in 2021 and where we're going. Uh, a lot of us in geopolitics and empire, I think, understand the basics. You know, technocracy. I've, I've interviewed Patrick Wood, uh, world government. I, I've, I've interviewed a number of... Uh, folks, experts, uh, some of the globalists themselves uh, on world government. We, we know about the banking system, geopolitics, and, and the current, you know, World War III scenario we find ourselves in. Perhaps to start, you know, of all the topics you've been covering, what is currently most pressing on Jay Dyer's mind? Uh, I think that we are in the middle of a, a business phase basically it's like rolling out a business plan and we're we're at a phase now where um you know the the events of the last two years uh were clearly planned many many years ahead of time and i think a lot of people get caught up in the immediacy of what's happening right now or the the, the news story that's happening right now but i always like to zoom out and kind of take a big picture and that's why i try to stay focused on the white papers and where they're trying to keep uh, where they're trying to take things in a, in a long uh, term goal. And I think that we're in the middle of a situation where I think everybody knew that a new O variation was coming. We expected that they rolled that out perfectly uh, as everybody thought. And then <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, part of these initial phases of putting, putting into play what uh, the world economic forum had on their website uh, last year, which is this giant grid of every area of life being rewritten. And you could zoom in on like any one of the sections of this big circle they had. And you go into that circle and it pulls up another circle and you have all these other areas of this uh, domain of life. And it was like everything from education to banking to, you know, food to culture. Every area of life was graphed out, uh, you know, in this World Economic Forum page, uh, which it wasn't secret, but you had to sign up for email to get access to this page. And that's what we're at is, is them rolling this mega plan out, which, by the way, that was up and running right when kufid was really getting going <laughs> in like april march april last year uh so you know how do they how do they have all this ready to run right if there wasn't a lot of forethought a lot of foreplanning and uh you know that's where i think those key documents come into play like uh the uh, the rockefeller lockstep document or the projected future scenarios document uh that's where uh, other documents that I've been covering recently, I, I think, are more relevant that I kind of overlooked over the years, which is the Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars document, which a lot of people kind of thought was maybe um, in the domain of iffy. We don't really know if this is a real document or not. I, I think now it is real. 
just due to all of uh, what's happened, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, and then other documents and, and war game exercise, everybody knows about event 201, everybody knows about spars and all that stuff. So I think that those are great uh, windows into the long-term plan where we're going that I've been reading the UK Ministry of Defense uh, transhumanist document that they put out uh, a few months ago. And that one's really relevant. It ties into this. And so what we started to see, what we're really seeing is just the overall plan of the last century is being rolled out uh, from, from the technocrats perspective through these manage and stage crises. And that's the, the, the key thing to understand is that big, big crises typically uh, are <clears throat> managed phenomena. They're not always, there may be an organic crisis, but a lot of times, even if it's organic, the plan is then to steer the crisis to, you know, uh, to some end. And I think that that's what's going on here is that the Western power block, uh, who is really the corporate elite power block, banking elite power block, is behind everything that we're seeing roll out. And so we're, we're right in the middle of that, right before they attempt to do, I'm more and more thinking that it's like Jacobinism, like year zero French Revolution type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be like the, as you said, over the past century, we've seen little snippets of things that they've tried to do. And this seems to be like the culmination, like yeah. the major push um, forward. And I had a question. You, you brought up some interesting points. Um, now they're slipping my mind. But um, I, I kind of think of Alice going through Wonderland and, you know, imagining us now going through Klaus Schwab's Wunderland and, and Great Reset filled with vaccine passports, social credit and, and cyber yeah. pandemics. And right. you know, you've, you've been doing, doing a lot of analysis on, on the metaverse. And you recently talked about Bill Joy's Wired essay on how the future doesn't need us. And um, I know the elites have projections of what they want to achieve, which does not mean that they will um, mm -hmm. achieve their goals exactly. Right. Uh, at the same time, you know, the the Bible paints prophecy that, you know, history progressively will get worse until the second coming and will end up in a totalitarian global state for a brief moment in time. So I do see the elites having uh, initial success. Aldo Huxley has talked about the final revolution. And, you know, I recently watched an episode of Utopia where everyone was living in this horrific social credit system. And we're starting mm -hmm. to see them make life difficult for us with travel restrictions and mandatory QR code apps to do anything. Uh, what's kind of your extra extrapolation uh, of the next few years? What, what's it kind of going to look like? One of the overlooked figures uh, who was a big, I think, a bigger and bigger shadow role in, the, in a lot of this was Jacques Attali. And uh, in that Bill Joy essay, I didn't expect him to mention his meetings and discussions with Jacques Attali, but What's interesting is that he, in the Bill Joy essay, he goes through a lot of the material that's very similar to what's in Quigley's Tragedy and Hope and basically admits that the infrastructure of the initial phases of the, of the, uh, the global government, the technocracy, really arose out of the UN's plans for um, managing nukes, right? So the, it's the, called the Baruch plan, Bernard Baruch. Uh, actually set up the plan to manage the nukes. And he 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 says basically what Quigley said, which is that that was actually the means by which technocracy, technocracy would really get rolling and they would try to erect this system. I see the Cold War as a big part of that business phase as well. So I kind of see these things as big, long chunks, like the, the big wars are like these business phases to roll out the next uh, stage of the plan. And what we're in now is that stage where... Uh, in the next few years, I think what we're going to see is the attempt, maybe not in the next two years, but 
in the next 10 to 20 years, the projected white paper plans, and especially Atali. Atali is very detailed in what he says and what he would like to see by 2030 and by 2050. Uh, and then if you compare that to Ray Kurzweil and his books I've been looking at recently, where he's talking about what he wants to see by 2030 and by 2050, we really are seeing an, a planet. He actually actually calls it a, a planetary empire. Uh, he says that it's a planetary empire, though, of uh, basically computer dominance. And so you won't <clears throat> have the um, the freedoms that you have now that we all sort of take for granted will no longer even be normative. They will just be seen as sort of, you know, past fancies or whatever. But he says that uh, the final form of the of the global evolution, uh, according to Atali, is, in, is projected to be in place between 2040 to 2050. Uh, he says, by then, uh, bots will run everything, especially through the avenue of medicine and healthcare. So I think that you're going to see more and more um, AI, more and more bots rolling out. I mean, already when you go to the doctor, like the, I noticed the, I went to the doctor, I think a year ago, and I noticed the nurses and the doctors, they're all just searching Google for like what <laughs> the symptoms are and then like what the drug is to give a person, right? So um, it's it's already kind of basically... Uh, roboticized i don't know if you've ever if you've seen idiocracy you know that part where luke wilson goes in and they're they're just like pushing in like on a a, a mcdonald's like register like what his symptoms are and anyway that's that's what it made me think of so i think that the atali was uh, one of the figures who said that medicine and would be the back door by which a lot of the global technocracy would kind of slide into place uh, Fritov Kapra is another global uh, elitist person who said the same stuff so that's what we're going to say we're going to see uh, the the uh, according to the lockstep document, uh, more and more um, automation and techno sizing of every area of life in the next ten years, and that is intended to just be part of that lockdown control grid. And, and I mean, that's really just the last third of Klaus's book is saying the exact same thing too. The fourth industrial revolution. So that's what I expect to see in the next ten years. Yeah, my, my question came back to me. I've, I've had on a number of guests, and we've been just kind of. Asking the question, I, I've spoken to Canadian scientist Denis Rancourt and uh, Alex Craner, a recurring guest, and I recently spoke to uh, Riley Wagaman, who's who's in Russia, who used to be a deputy editor for RT, and he's saying that you know Russia is full on implementing uh, all of this stuff, and you know it seems like everyone's on board, China, Russia, the West. So, do you view it as like all nations are, are now subscribed to this, or do you see like any division between the West and the East? It seems like on the COVID plan, there's not much division, like everybody's sort of signing on to the same thing. And then at the same time, we hear uh, drums of potential war with China, potential war with uh, Russia over Ukraine. So uh, I know I have a lot of uh, people that I talk to that do a lot of high level analysis. I've talked to, I've got a buddy who's a former uh, Marine Corps uh, South China Sea analyst guy, and he's studied that region for 20 years. He's convinced that there will have to be a war as well in the next 10 years. So, um, and then we know that wars are actually planned out many years ahead of time. So I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so I think that both things can be true. We can have a, a level to which there's integration and commonality in terms of um, the the long term KUFID plans, and then at the same time there can be regional and and more near-term conflicts and wars that can break out. 
Uh, and we have the same. Uh, I, I mean, it's there's a lot going on geopolitically at the moment, and um, as you say, it really does seem the two hotspots of you mentioned South China Sea and South China Sea, and now we have Ukraine are ripe uh, for explosion. And I've always had the idea that there's going to be uh, a war by, by by hook or by crook, and mm -hmm. I'm I'm now seeing many otherwise academics who have been conservative in their opinion generally most academics are conservative in their opinion and now they're coming out and saying that they feel like this is we are in 1913 or, or 1937 so uh i don't see anything strange of their of a third world war breaking out i, I just think it's the, the default nature of humanity and as you say they they use these wars to to achieve their uh, agenda yeah. no yeah, wartime is the greatest time for getting social change and social engineering through. Um, many of the white papers discuss that. A lot of the big geopolitical strategists discuss that you can get so much more done through wartime. And actually, if you think about it, what they've been doing in 2020 and in 2021 is just another version of that. Because even though it's not war against a foreign enemy, it's war against the invisible enemy. And so the, it's just merely the fear factor that allows them to reorganize society along these technocratic lines. So we are, we're actually kind of in that scenario now where it's like a, a wartime emergency power scenario. And that's exactly what's been going on for the last two years, not just in the U.S., but it's, it's, we've already can see that we're, we're kind of in a global government now. It's already here. The skeletal, uh, you know, outline framework of it has been there for many years. It was all constructed in the 20th century with, the, you know, the international organizations and, and UN and all this kind of stuff being kind of rolled out from the moneyed power elite in the West who set all that up with, you know, with their money and their influence, their power, both bankers and industrialists together. So it's it's uh, it, there's a, there's such a, an amazing commonality when we read the the globalist writers of 100 years ago. If you look at Lord Birkenhead's famous essay, and, and he actually wrote this before H.G. Wells or Huxley. He wrote in, I think, 19 in the teens, the essay for Cosmopolitan, where he said that we'll have a global control grid. You'll get social credits. You'll get uh, babies born in incubators. This is all going to roll out. Uh, so this was, you know, that's an older British empire uh, sort of socialist model technocratic model and then huxley kind of updates it hg wells updates it says all the same stuff and here we are 100 years later and it's the exact plan rolling out like almost to the t i mean obviously they got a few things a few things wrong but yeah i, I think that what we would expect next would be probably more of the cyber polygon type scenarios uh, i went and read about that exercise and uh in that they have basically a, a fake flag internet down downage uh outage and attack I think we've already seen a little bit of that with the pipeline attacks. My suspicion is that the ransomware attacks were probably uh, probably some sort of private intelligence uh, apparatus that was able to do this. I don't think that it's actually uh, malicious state actors. I think it's uh, I think these are these are these are inside types of things, and that's very easy to do with you know internet and tech type of stuff. So, uh, and Klaus says you know that the the cyber pandemic will be way it'll dwarf you know the, the president kufid pandemic make it look like nothing so if, if he's any uh reliable <laughs> guide that's what he says is coming next yeah i'm already experiencing i'm already having trouble like uh, paying for stuff with my with my credit card and i don't know if it's like um i'm already like i've already got a social credit score that, that they're blacklisting me or it's just because the, the banks are becoming stricter uh, because of the fraud and the cyber attacks that are happening, so either mm -hmm. way, it's getting hard now to to 
to do to make purchases uh, online. And I mean, you, so you mentioned like, yeah, they were talking exactly about this scenario uh, over a century ago. How do you think it is that um, they knew this would come to fruition? I mean, did they did they know that this technology existed, or they they were you know they they were at the initial stages of this technology? You know, what what makes you think that? How do they? How could they project out a century? You know, so far. I think that uh, <clears throat> this is part of where fiction plays a role in this, especially science fiction. Which um, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that because it's true. It's because a science fiction writer says it's true. I, I don't think that's that would be silly. But I think that uh, science fiction writers just try to kind of project what the likelihood will be. You know, based on the you know quick advance of technology, where it can probably go, what kinds of things we would probably be able to tap into based on the sort of nascent technology that was uh, available at that time. Um, so I just think they're projecting into the future what would likely be the case. I mean, the, the greatest example, that's H.G. Wells, who, you know, predicted, uh, you know, the, the, the human mutations. He predicted, uh, you know, nukes. He predicted, uh, you know, moon travel. I mean, all these things that we now take for granted as part of you know, modern sci-fi civilization. H.G. Wells wrote about all these things in all his goofy fiction books. Um, so that's what I think is going on. And I, I think they also have a, a approach to fiction where, I mean, this is what I got into in my Hollywood books, is that I think they think that, that that's a much more powerful way to uh, sort of prepare and warm people up for accepting these things over anything to do with nerdy, rational science stuff. They know that most people are going to be interacting with these ideas through fiction so they will they will put these ideas in fiction to kind of warm people up and then it's kind of a uh, symbiotic relationship where people come up with ideas if you read uh annie jacobson's book uh, on the history of darpa she actually talks about a lot of the uh, big hollywood directors and science fiction writers have been meeting with people in the pentagon for decades and they have a back and forth like the pentagon will suggest oh, you know, put this into your Terminator uh, franchise. And then they'll say, what about soldiers that could do this, you know, fly when they have blah, blah, blah. So it's a back and forth that's been going on between the stage and the intelligence and, and tech R&D side of the the power structure. This has been going on for, for a long time. So that's what I think is going on. I think they just project ideas in the future. And also, uh, you know, I don't think the, the British Empire didn't really die. It just kind of morphed into, you know, the American Empire. And, um, yeah, I, th I think that and, and they everybody's compartmentalized. So they don't know what the big, you know, the big overall plans are. And I think your shows like yours, at least what I've seen in your telegram, you know, like what we what we talk about is we talk about things that people at the level of like a Kissinger or Jacques Attali or Brzezinski. That's how they view things. And never in history have we had that kind of a situation where guys like me and you could put out a podcast and talk about things at the level that a Kissinger or Brzezinski do. Now, that's I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm as important as Henry. I'm as important as Henry Kissinger. And I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, um, you know, 30 years ago, the only people who have, would have knowledge of an access and information that we're talking about would be people in international relations people going into those kinds of jobs and fields people going into intelligence work they wouldn't have access to this kind of stuff which you know that's one positive of the internet is that we do have access to this so we're at a unique stage now where we can look at all this data look at what they've been saying for 100 years the same power structure see it rolling out and if people <clears throat> if people could recognize this there would be 
I think we could change things for the better, but of course, uh, you know, the, there's so much disinformation. There's so much baloney. There's so much overload of information that it's just really hard to convey this, this level of information to a mass audience. Yeah, it's incredible the, the time that we live in and we get to it's all everything's open source now. And I spent yeah. a year I spent a year in Geneva, the School of Diplomacy, and I was around some of some of these, you know, uh elites. Uh I think recently my, my school, every year they invite a, they give an honorary doctorate, and this year they gave it to Unfortunately, the uh, the Ethiopian the, um, Tedros, the director Tedros, of the WHO, yeah. so he was there at my alma mater receiving an, a doctorate. <laughs> Just like wow. Well, well, whatever. I mean, you know, they're they're, a, they're a globalist. I mean, it was a great school and great experience, but full on globalist. Uh, I was watching a few of your recent interviews, um, as well as a Jay Dyer classic from 2018 that you posted to to Rockfin, where you talk about America being the blueprint and prototype. Of the new world order and and world government and uh, this is kind of something i've been looking into recently which is fascinating that this kind of patriotism americana revolutionary spirit are kind of actually proponents um in a way uh, of the world state and they're rooted in the esoteric and occult revolutionary movements which uh, began with the french and american revolutions in the 18th century and which have continued since you mentioned billington's fire in the minds of men which i have up here be behind me and um you know I, I agree with you i think we recently saw an example of this when general michael flynn at a patriot event offered an explicitly occult and theosophic prayer masked as a uh, Christian prayer and and the, the exact words that he used, someone actually found a, a, a copy from like 20, 30 years ago of some uh, new age occultists reciting that basically the same thing that Michael Flynn was saying, which was really kind of weird. And so could you kind of briefly comment or unpack, you know, how America is actually pushing us towards, uh, you know, the new world order? Well, that's of course uh, uh, not you, but the, that analysis. I sometimes I put those kind of titles out there to kind of uh, you know trigger and kind of get people like clicking on. And so I recognize that not everything about America is evil. I'm not saying that all of Americans are or the uh, there, there's a lot of positives to America. Obviously, you know some of the positives would be the founding fathers opposed the banking elite. They understood the power of uh, you know, fiat money printing. Um, those are positives. They understood that we should be under rule of law, that, you know, the state doesn't grant you uh, your rights. The rights come from God. So all those things are positive. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm like anti-America or I don't appreciate the positives of my country. I do. But at the same time, I also can recognize and be honest about the philosophical problems and flaws in the enlightenment philosophy that underpins America. So, you know, my training isn't geopolitics or it's, it's philosophy. So that's the domain that I, I can speak to most uh, confidently. And if you know enlightenment philosophy, you know that it's very influenced by uh, the Freemasonic lodges of that time, both the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Uh, I did have a lot of um, actually took several classes on revolutionary philosophy in grad and undergrad. So I had some pretty pretty solid teachers that were, that were, that knew this subject really, really well. And so, and it's not even an area I even care that much about. I just, there was like the certain semesters that I had to pick certain classes. Like, well, I guess this one's the only one that sounds that interesting. I'll pick, you know, French revolution. I'll pick modern revolutionary movements. I'll pick Marxism critical theory. So there weren't that many options. So I just kind of had to choose this. Uh, so it's kind of accidental that I, I learned this stuff, but 
Um, what one one example of this would be uh, there's a book by Habermas where he it's what's it called something about revolutionary. Um, I'll have to find that, but it's like his history of revolutionary philosophy. And what's amazing is that you might think that Habermas would have this negative appraisal of America, but he doesn't. He actually has this very positive appraisal that America is another version of the revolution. Well, that's fascinating because that's what I learned in my French Revolution class, which is that the Jacobins and the Girondins are really just two sides of the same revolutionary coin. And they're just kind of differed a little bit on, uh, you know, things like private property, right? So the Jacobins were more radical, the, you know, in the French Revolution, when they took power, they just want to kill everybody and basically, you know, <laughs> behead people and put in this total communistic state. Uh, and then in the tradition of the Grandins, you get more of a merchant class sort of, uh, you know, what we, what we might see in, uh, you know, George Washington or somebody like that, where we've got, uh, property rights, we've got these sort of, uh, and, but it's all grounded on the idea of natural law, uh, natural law theory, which is a specific enlightenment idea that comes from a certain train of, uh, a thought philosophically speaking, which actually is influenced by hermeticism. It's actually comes out of a lot of those hermetic groups and lodges that you were mentioned. And I didn't even, <clears throat> I, I learned a lot of this stuff before I even had Billington's book. And then I, I was surprised when I got Billington's book, who's just a sort of normal, normal uh, scholar authority on that subject, because he was the uh, uh, head of the uh, library of Congress. Like his second chapter is the occult origins of all of the revolutionary movements. So like literally within like two chapters, he goes into this topic. So it shouldn't really be that controversial. If people don't know this, but that's the point is that America is a weird blend of, uh, so to not be overly simplified, it's a blend of, on the one hand, some Christian ideas. It's a blend of uh, English common law, Roman uh, legal theory, uh, canon law actually coming to play with uh, the idea of America. Uh, Italian Republic philosophy, uh, Machiavelli uh, comes into play with uh, this um, in terms of like Declaration of Independence and things like that. Uh, John Locke, obviously, so th th as well as um, hermetic occult ideas. So it's, a, it's just the, it's the bizarrest blend, actually, if you think about it, of all these things. So, so I think America kind of had different junctures in her history where she could have chosen to go in different directions. And what ended up happening was, and I guess people could debate how to what degree this was, you know, always planned. I don't know. I don't have any overall theory about that. But uh, you do have some people that speculated that it could be the sort of launching uh, pad for a utopia, uh, Bacon's New Atlantis kinds of you know, these kinds of ideas. I don't know about all that, but regardless, um, America chose to go in the direction of being more and more uh, epistemologically self-conscious with the ideas of revolution as opposed to any of the latent Christian ideas or the uh, canon law ideas that influenced her. So she, America went in that direction and she has chosen, especially after the advent of uh, the CFR and all those sort of uh, covert uh, British intelligence operations to turn America into a policeman of the world, which is what, you know, Quigley is talking about, what, uh, you know, the, the, what they did under uh, uh, FDR and all that to set up the national security state, which is the shadow government and all that. So that, that took America in this direction of basically signing on to being, um, you know, the global implementer of the, the new world order. 
And what a lot of people don't realize, and this is why I mentioned the critical theory, is that critical theory is one thing that they they mention about revolutionary thought that I think is relevant is that revolution never ends. And so when you have a revolutionary ethos, the next generation has the duty to critique the previous generation. And for that, for the critical theorists, it's called culture critique, right? You, you never stop. You critique the critique, and then you critique the critique of the critique. So it just keeps going. And that's the point about America is that America is kind of like uh, the snakeskin that's shed for the, the, the New World Order 2.0 to come in. So it's almost like it's meant to die and go away because the next phoenix from the flame, the, 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 from the ashes, the phoenix has to rise. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is fascinating. I know, as you mentioned, we're kind of speculating now, but looking at it uh, long term, you know, before these revolutions, we had, you know, monarchies and and kings for, for, for millennia. And I think what these revolutions did was overthrow all royalty globally to institute these so-called democratic republics, which with with capital, with money now, you can basically democracies in a way today has become fake. You can just buy off every yeah. democracy and manipulate all 130, 30, 193 democratic republics. And that's kind of the way to achieve then the world state, because you create all of these republics, you put them into this like UN institution or whatever, and you control each of them. And that's kind of the mechanism of how to have a world state, yes. which I don't see how otherwise, if you had monarchies or, or other forms of government, you, you wouldn't be able to achieve, no? Well, I mean, or, maybe, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> there's never any perfect scenario. I know you're not saying this, but I mean, there's no like perfect uh, form of government that would necessarily always protect you. But the, conceivably, there are types of governments that could. And and uh, but but regardless of what would or might be the case, that is historically factually the case that uh, the revolutions of the uh, 1700s and 1800s pretty much overthrew most of the world's uh, monarchies and installed the democratic republics, which. Ironically, Plato said a long time ago, which and I mean, I'm not an advocate of Plato, but it's funny because he's kind of the model for all the people who, you know, want this technocratic state. It's it's ultimately platonic. Uh, and but Plato said that, you know, like th- these these types of governments are just ridiculous because they're the most susceptible to uh, falling over into anarchy and, and mob rule because the the control is based on the lowest common denominator, which is the passions. So it, there's almost this internal impetus to degrade society to make them more malleable and controllable. And lo and behold, that's where we are right now. And so they're going to try to, yeah, the, the goal is to bring in this world state that will be uh, some type of, you know, quasi platonic republic model. Uh, after, of course, there's a mass sort of culling. So, I mean, there's going to be, I mean, maybe beginning right now, the culling of the population uh, in large degree. So that's the the fanatical kind of uh, extremism here is that these are uh, Luciferian technocratic extremists, in my view. And Although I can't verify the Pike Mazzini letter, I actually tend to probably think it was true. Like I think because it actually explains what's happening and the topic that you brought up, because if you know, the the lodges had in in their, I think it's the night of Kadosh, one of the uh, degrees has the um, throne and you got, we have to overthrow throne and altar. And uh, I think it's the night Kadosh degree of the Scottish, right? But it's one of those. It doesn't matter. The point is that, that that's was the goal. They've done that. 
And according to Pike and all these people, they do want to institute a kind of new age, a new aeon. The new age movement itself actually comes out of Freemasonic philosophy. Uh, and most of the, of the occultists and hermeticists, they've had this idea. Uh, even the Satanists have this idea that we're at this sort of turning point age, which, again, it all lines up with the global elite uh, writings as well, that we're at this turning point to bring in this new aeon which will be unlike any of the previous aeons and especially unlike the last 2000 years of, you know, Pisces. Now it's going to be the Aquarian age, right? Which will be this sort of, uh, they call it a Luciferian age. So uh, I, I, I don't think everybody in the global elite power structure believes that or is on, on, in, on board with that. But if you believe in the Bible, or if you have a spiritual perspective, then that is all the ultimate sort of guiding principle for the global government. Yeah, I, do, I agree with you as well. The, that Pike um, was any letter, I mean, it, it, they say it's fake, but it's actually coming to fruition. Yeah, right. and, and other documents, like the report from Iron Mountain, you read it, exactly. and it's like they say they're going to create a fake environmental crisis, fake terrorists, right. and a fake alien invasion. Like we've already done two of those three. So, um, and, and well, by the way, on the Iron Mountain, you probably heard me say it, but uh, so that was written as satire. But then Miles Copeland in his book Game of Nations says in the in the introduction that it's actually the report from Iron Mountain satire is based on the Cold War uh, CIA game center. So it is actually based on real uh, meetings and plans, even if that was satire. <clears throat> Yeah, and on the, and the, on the uh, occult, when I was in, so I've actually visited, I've been to the Lutz's Trust office in the Lucifer Publishing Company uh, oh, office wow. in Geneva, and I attended one of their meetings. And just so I can, with credibility, talk about this, because when I talk about this, I try to talk about it in my classes, people are like, oh, you crazy conspiracy theorists. But I'm like, <laughs> no, I've got the pamphlet. I actually have it somewhere in a box here yeah. from 2000, 2009. And it actually says that they handed it out at the meeting that I attended. And it talks about like Lucifer being Prometheus. And it's, yes. it's in there. And it's on their website that they think, you know, Lucifer is basically the Christ or the Messiah. Well, the Rockefeller, exactly. The Rockefellers put a whole bunch of uh, money, power, influence into the whole, you know, United Nations. They donated the land that the UN building is on in, in New York. Uh, and they, you know, supported that publishing house as well, which used to be called Lucifer Publishing before they changed the name to Lucifer's Trust. But um, that was actually one of the first conspiracy things i read back when i was 18 or 19 and i thought that this is this is wild this is crazy this is but i had gone to new york and i'd visited the un back when i was a senior in high school just on a senior trip so i, I and i had seen if you go to rockefeller plaza you know you the you see the giant prometheus statue and i think that that's intentional right and i think that that's the attitude that's the mindset of the elites and when then so eventually over time you know sort of collecting these books and uh, in the authorized biography of the Rockefellers, they actually talk about co-opting the religious movements, co-opting these entities uh, to basically make churches into NGOs. That's essentially what the uh, multiple chapters in the A Collier and Horowitz Rockefeller book says, is, is that they basically just bought off these movements to steer them into being uh, tools of, uh, you know, soft power, basically Rockefeller soft power. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff is intentional. I, I would always, yeah. I always frequently visit the old League of Nations building, which is now the UN headquarters in Geneva. And they've got like, you can see on the map, I, I was there drinking coffee, the Serpentine Lounge. Um, and in the conference halls, 
they've got pyramids. So like the microphone is a pyramid and you touch the, the capstone and it lights up red and you speak into it. Like, come on, like if, oh, how weird. many coincidences, how coincidences can there be micro, you know, pyramid microphones, serpentine lounge. And, and as you say, on a, on a goes Prometheus and, and, and so on. Um, have you it, ever been to the one in New York where the, the I've always wanted, I want to see that, that meditation room with a big black cube, you know? Yeah. I've seen that. That's seen weird. The, I've never been to New York, but yeah, that'd be interesting to go see that. It, yeah, th- I think they say Lucis Trust is in charge of that, like meditation room. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. Um, getting kind of back to the Great Reset, you, you've been talking about this. You were you recently gave an interview on a Bitcoin uh, podcast, and um, I think you're positive on Bitcoin. I'm still a, a skeptic and leaning toward it being a globalist Trojan horse. Uh, I can't bring myself to come down firmly in. in in either camp, I feel the jury is still out. Uh, mm-hmm. If over time, you know, Bitcoin does turn out to be a true cypherpunk creation, I'm happy to admit uh, I'm wrong. But for me, it seems to function um, so well, kind of as a bridge into the cashless society, kind of paving the way for the metaverse. We've had, you know, the 1988 Economist cover, the MIT NSA mm-hmm. white paper, and so on. But you know, maybe it is providential and a way for us to survive the Great Reset. Well, what makes you think it's not a globalist-related uh, project? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing I would say is that my initial analysis was what you said. I thought that was probably the case when I first heard about Bitcoin back in about 2012, 13. I remember Max Kaiser would be on Alex, uh, you know, talking all about Bitcoin and it's only a dollar. You better get in and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, that's going to be that's not that's they're never going to let even if it was what they said, it's never going to be anything. They would they would shut that down or whatever. Um, and so the more I learned about it, the more I looked into it, the more nuanced, the more kind of uh, complex i saw it, that this is and i'm certainly no like economic expert i'm not a master of blockchain technology or anything like that but my understanding is that uh so there's <clears throat> there's different types of blockchain technologies and so it, there's nothing inherently in my view there's nothing inherently bad about blockchain itself that would necessarily make it evil any more than the internet itself you know is something evil so we already kind of use, um, I mean, if the argument was that it's necessarily going to lead to um, a cashless society, well, I mean, the internet would would be the same problem. So we, we should, by that logic, I'm not dissing you, but I'm just saying that, and maybe we should, maybe we actually, we should like get rid of the internet one day. I don't know. Like maybe if we have, you know, an EMP or a, a, the a super cyber polygon, maybe the internet will go away. We'll be living in it. I think Klaus actually said the other day, something like, uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm remembering this right, but something like there will be the smart cities. Everyone else will live like it is the 1800s. <laughs> so, so maybe we will be living in prairie land and it'll be like, uh, you know, little house in the prairie or something. I don't know if, if we are allowed to live, right. If the robots don't come kill us in our, in our log cabins or whatever, we'll be fighting robots with shotguns and, and, uh, log cabins. Anyway, um, <clears throat> that actually might be a good idea for a, like a sci-fi story, but, um, so Bitcoin, I think, has uh, uh, its own kind of network and its own blockchain system. And if you look at what Klaus actually a couple months ago, they put out a their statement, uh, World Economic Forum, on the five cryptos that they want. And what's interesting about the projects that they recommended, it was like uh, Algorand, uh, Stellar Lumen, uh, and a few other uh, Ripple, I think, was on there. Those are all centralized projects. And so those are projects that uh, would be very amenable to what Klaus's ideas are because it allows a central entity to 
determine who can be on those networks, uh, you know, shut your coins off, potentially any of that kind of stuff is, is the, the power of the centralized blockchains and networks. And the idea with uh, uh, Bitcoin and DeFi and these kinds of things is decentralization. So <clears throat> the first thing I would say is that I don't think that there's a reason why Klaus didn't mention Bitcoin. He did mention these other centralized projects. Uh, and if you read Klaus's Fourth Industrial Revolution in the the, the last section where he talks about the Internet of Things, blockchain, uh, nano chipping of everyone, et cetera. Uh, he basically says some of the same stuff that we need a centralized uh, blockchain technology whereby we can do this kind of control. So that's why I think Klaus and company don't mention Bitcoin. Other allies of his, uh, like Mr. Gates, he actually says we got to get rid of Bitcoin. Uh, Hillary the other day, let's get rid of Bitcoin. It's destroying the dollar. So I think those that crowd is they realize the disruption potential and 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 uh, for Bitcoin. And I am not saying that every that makes all. So in other words, crypto is its own kind of universe with bad projects, evil projects, good projects. The, 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 it's a it's a it's a battle kind of right now. And so part of what will determine, I think, the future is which projects people adopt. So there's kind of a war right now for media, propaganda, attention, getting people on to trying to convince them of bad projects. There's a lot of these nefarious, evil, scammy, centralized projects that are out there. And that's precisely why I changed my opinion. So, oh, well, I think we're going to have to conform to this reality. It'd be like, you know, in 1998, passing around flyers, like, don't get on the internet, right? I mean, we're going to be on the internet. Uh, there's going to be uh, currencies and currency wars. We're already in, a, in currency wars right now. So right now, fiat money is a scam, and it's the, it's the global uh, systems, you know, control. So if you, we understand the hard asset nature of Bitcoin, what it is, uh, just compared to fiat, it's way superior, right? And it's even better than gold, I think. So, <clears throat> and I don't think that, the, that you have to be or either the, one or the other. I mean, I think that we could have, you can have gold and Bitcoin. You can have silver and Bitcoin. You can have other projects that you research and look into, uh, you know, maybe, you, you know, even if Ethereum is somewhat uh, centralized, there's other projects on Ethereum that are decentralized finance. So not everything, it's not, it's, it's a huge grab bag basically. And it's, and it's a war going on right now. So that's why it's nuanced. And that's why it's not necessarily any more than uh, you, you going on your phone and using your bank app, you know, to pay your bills. I mean, that's cashless society already right there. So if we're going to have e-money, we might as well choose the most secure, the most decentralized, the most non-manipulatable currency. <clears throat> and I do understand that at this stage early on, we're still early. <clears throat> there are whales who own a lot of Bitcoin who can influence the market. So there's no system, though, that is perfect in the sense that nobody can manipulate it. Nobody can. I mean, even in, in terms of gold, there can be uh, more gold added to the supply by mining you can have tungsten, you can have all these different ways to manipulate gold as well. <clears throat> gold notes can be manipulated. So I think that even in terms of manipulation compare in comparison to gold and fiat, uh, Bitcoin is still superior in that regard because even with whale manipulation in terms of uh, that really just causes price fluctuations. Uh, so that's why I still think that overall it's uh, 
one of the best bets for people who want to have an alternative to the fiat scam system. And really, there's no other um, refuge right now. I mean, you, yeah, there could be gold, but uh, gold is less secure than Bitcoin because you can have your Bitcoin offline. Uh, you can know your seed phrases and it's in here, right? So <laughs> you can't put your gold in here, right? I mean, your gold might be stored in Jack Sparrow's uh, desert island, some like some island off of the coast of Tortuga or something, or, you know, maybe you've got it buried somewhere, but the government can still go find that, right? Uh, and and so I think that, again, and yeah, ultimately, if they really want to, I guess the government could take you and torture you and get your seed phrases or whatever. But that what I'm saying is that there's better and best. There's no perfect silver bullet. But anyway, that's my five minute spill on Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of on, on the fence as I mentioned. Um, and I have no idea. I, Bitcoin can go to the moon. Uh, it can collapse uh, tomorrow. It just kind of makes me think of you know everyone knows G. Edward Griffin's creature from Jekyll Island. Um, I had to, I you know life is strange. Uh, Ten years ago, he took me he took me out uh, to lunch at California Pizza Kitchen. I was volunteering for his newsletter, Unfiltered News, like in 2008, nine, and ten. And I was going out to L.A. to see. Um, to, to hang out and um, he, his assistant said, Hey, Ed wants to, to meet you, you know, as a thanks kind of for volunteering. And so I get to have lunch with uh, Ed Griffin. And he mentions in his book, how when they tried to create the federal reserve act in 1913, they kind of played this, this strategy, the bankers where they had the Senator come out or, uh, and make it look like the bankers were against the federal reserve act. So the population would think, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And that was kind of like their strategy of getting the Federal Reserve formed, which, again, as I said, who knows? Maybe that's that could be their strategy today with Hillary and Bill uh, uh, Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton coming out and saying, oh, Bitcoin bad. We don't want it. But Yeah, I mean, I understand the 66 degree chess game that you that might be OK. But but if you think about like, I mean, they, we know that they run the fiat system. Right. And we know that that's a scam. And if you just think, I mean, I think I'm not saying that you're doing this or this wrong, but uh, I do think that sometimes a lot of us in this domain, we can overanalyze to where we double, double, double get a second guess. And we kind of maybe miss our initial correct intuitions, which is that Bitcoin is not fiat. It's a hard asset. It's the hardest asset because it's a way to store energy and value over time. The fiat system, even according to the uh, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars document, is itself a weapon. So it, it, it points out that the, the energy loss over time through inflation is intentional to destroy and sap and take people's wealth and value and energy over time. It's a it's a uh, prison mechanism. It even says it's an enslavement prison mechanism. And so if you understand if you if we understand what Bitcoin is, again, apart from well, we just simply like maybe there's some, you know, amorphous secret backdoor, which, again, we don't know that that exists. We've not seen anything like that. So taking it at least as as it's presented, it's the hardest asset. Uh, it's not subject to any uh, inflation uh, debasement. It can't be uh, uh, inflated. Like just on those metrics alone, like why would it not be uh, superior to the fiat system? Or are you saying that, well, fiat's bad and Bitcoin's bad. And so, I mean, maybe you think that it should be a gold only standard. But again, if Bitcoin is superior even to gold, uh, you know, unless we want to go back to 1800s and get rid of the Internet, which I don't think is really plausible. I, d I don't see why we wouldn't 
uh, prefer this system just just on the metrics of like the, the hardness of the asset. The Bitcoin can't be inflated. Fiat system is and and will continue to be running up this debt. Uh, that's just unsustainable. So like, why wouldn't we want a system that operates that way? Unless, I mean, I, what I hear you saying is that you're basically just suspicious of the origins, or are you suspicious of blockchain technology or are you suspicious of um the brand of bitcoin or what what is really the origin of the suspicion i mean my my suspicion is only that it it could be the the origin of either blockchain or or um bitcoin because Mm -hmm. that that could be kind of serve as a bridge to take us to the cbdc's and and the cashless uh, society because if 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 we didn't have this huge you know run up in cryptos and people getting rich and if they just came one day and said, you know, we're we're in the old analog kind of world using cash, and the the bankers and elites are like, hey, we're gonna go switch to a cashless society, everyone's gonna be like, no. But now that they've kind of wet uh, our, our appetite again, this is just one scenario for me. Right. I'm more of a practical person where I'll use crypto. You know, if I if I can get a use out of it, I'm I, I accept donations in, in Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, so I'm so I'm using it. And there are people that are more dogmatic about it. I've interviewed Allison McDowell, who's who does a, a lot of really good work, but she's very like, she says, she recently commented that said, she said that she won't go on, do any more interviews with anyone associated with, with Rockfin. So, because, you know, Rockfin's all like uh, using these the tokens and crypto now and, and blockchain. And so I guess I won't, <laughs> I won't get to interview her anymore. She does great. <laughs> she does great work. But again, you, you mentioned that that same logic where that means I can't use um, the internet, what I'm doing now, or, or, or um, I was making the joke that even if I decided to go live in some cabin in the woods, you know, I, and I'd have to build it probably, you know, the, the tool that I bought from the hardware store comes from some company uh, that's that where the CEO has attended Bilderberg, right? Some Good some mono- monopoly corporations. It's like you can't escape. Even if you go, you need that hammer made from Home Depot or whatever to, you know? So. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you know, Bitcoin is not purely speaking uh, non-existent or, I mean, you could write down, uh, you know, you can go to a Bitcoin ATM and you can get a piece of paper that has the, you know, I mean, you can have a form of cash or paper even with cryptocurrency. So it's, 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 it has multiple uses and functions and, and means and modes. So uh, I don't really understand. That's a, again, I think an incorrect uh, objection that, well, it'll, it'll bring us on to this. Well, but if that's the case, then your bank having an app where you pay your bills electronically is a step to the cashless system. So by that logic, we shouldn't be using banks. We shouldn't be using any apps to pay for things. And yet here we are doing it again. I don't think that it's a question of which of these technologies are we going to choose, which ones are going to be um, <clears throat> decentralized or hard assets. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is unique in that regard in that it's the one that is not just first, but it's the the hardest of the assets. So I, I just I still don't see why. Uh, in other words, every argument they would make against Bitcoin seems to return tenfold on the fiat system, from my view. And by the way, the central banks are going to be forced to create the CBDCs because of the challenge of Bitcoin. I mean, that, they're doing that, in my view, because, yeah, they want people on uh, a cashless society and they want people on FedCoin klaus coin and all the ones that he recommends which again none of those people like bitcoin <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting down to one of my last questions kind of the question i tend to ask all of my guests you know a key to figuring out 
how to survive is understanding these plans and projects is, is, is what you've been doing and what I've been doing for myself for many years, you know, reading the elites stuff. And so, you know, if you can kind of extrapolate you know, what are their plans and what they're trying to do, you can kind of plan better for yourself, your own kind of sort of reaction, uh, survival, uh, getaway plans and so forth. And, you know, someone we've both interviewed and, and I'm looking to get on again, uh, for example, Jim Jatras, uh, I think he's gone to like a full country uh, homestead and, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm wanting to do the same. What are your thoughts kind of on bracing for, for impact uh, of the Great Reset and, and, uh, and the metaverse and all of, the, all of this stuff uh, in the coming years. And, and as you mentioned, like, I don't have anything against, you know, having gold, silver, uh, Bitcoin, just using whatever means possible to, yeah. to stay afloat. Yeah, a lot of my friends uh, are into homesteading. Uh, that's not my personality. I'm not a farm kind of guy. Uh, I don't live in a city. I live in a small town. But um, I, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, if you're looking to you know, have a family, if you're looking to have uh, a normal, healthy, traditional, organic lifestyle, then you know, homesteading is great for people that can do that. Um, I do think that, I mean, I have, you know, storable food. I mean, I never thought I would be like the prepper type. I'm not a prepper, strictly speaking, because I don't, I'm just not a survivalist kind of dude. But I mean, I, I have had to move into, you know, we got a generator, we got storable food just to be uh, prepared for the reality of, you know, the electrical grid going down, war, these kinds of things, which do, you know, they are, they are possible. So I would say, yeah, I would say, um, easiest best case scenario try to get out of big cities try to get to the country doesn't mean you have to go live on a farm but you know you move in a small town i mean i think that a lot of small towns will probably be safe if things get really bad that'll be your best bet um yeah uh being as off-grid as possible in terms of self-sufficient you know having maybe even a lot of my friends have animals they have you know cows chickens this kind of stuff um i don't have that but you know people all around me have that um so that that's why yeah gold silver bitcoin guns those those are your best bets yeah that's kind of like what most of the people i talk to say um any final thought for us no i mean really glad that you had me on um I, i'm i'm ashamed to I, that i didn't realize you had a podcast it's not for uh i mean i follow your um your telegram pretty closely so i just missed it but i'm looking forward to digging into your interviews and uh honored that you had me and it was a great discussion and people can find you at jaysanalysis.com and subscribe to your um, in-depth analysis you do there for, I think it's $5 a month or $60 a year. And they can find you on Rockfin, as well as you host the fourth hour of InfoWars, I think once a week. So uh, what are the best places to find you and you know, uh, maybe tell us about your main uh, offering, uh, your membership? Yeah, basically, it's just uh, you get access to five or six years of uh, me just kind of summarizing and analyzing the books, doing a lot of the interviews similar to what you've done. Um, uh, it's not just that. There's also movie analyses. There's also weird uh, humor, comedy, satire. There's all kinds of stuff that we've been doing for the last uh, several years. And then we did a TV show based on uh, my first book, Hollywood Decoded, uh, over at Gaia. Um, there is, uh, my two books in the shop, which you can get. My wife, uh, has her books, which she does similar analysis to me. And yeah. So you get access to that archive and then, yeah, I do do other exclusive things over on Rockfin. So there's, there's, a the Rockfin content as well. So I would say definitely sign up over on Rockfin. Uh, and yeah, that's what we, we, we do film philosophy, geopolitics, theology. We cover all that stuff. We do debates with atheists, Muslims. We have 
a lot of public debates. So uh, yeah, you can find all that over at my website, jaysanalysis.com. All right, everyone, check that out. Oh, can I give a shout out to my sponsor too, which is chalk.com, which is uh, our uh, male uh, supplements, also for women too, but uh, we do a lot of um, uh, healthy, you know, organic type keto carnivore diet type stuff. And so they're, they're a great combination with people who adopt that kind of a diet and lifestyle. So they're anti big soy. Uh, they're definitely uh, pro-masculine. They're pro-toxic masculinity. So if you want to increase your toxicity in terms of your toxic masculinity, uh, you can go to chalk.com and get access to their supplements and use the promo code J60 to get 60% off. Yeah, I've seen you posting that on Telegram, although down here in Mexico, uh, I, I use iHerb.com, which is easier to get supplements here, but otherwise they, they charge you a fortune, the Mexican oh, really? uh, uh, customs to, to get supplements. Uh in and yeah, as I said, everyone check out jaysanalysis.com. I hope to continue this conversation with you sometime in 2022. And danke for being on geopolitics and empire and keep on rocking in the not so free world. <laughs> you too, man. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.